This is our new Asia series from Control Risk, our podcast that bring you insights from our in-house experts on the most pressing political, economic, and security risks that we see emerging in the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Dane Chamorro, a partner in our Asia business. From our offices across the region in Singapore, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Tokyo, New Delhi, and elsewhere, our team of specialist risk consultants help businesses that are operating and investing amidst a whole manner of challenges, including recovery from the latest pandemic crisis. Our offering includes political and regulatory analyses, vendor screening, strategic intelligence, forensics and data analytics, due diligence, crisis planning, and cyber response, just to name a few. Today, we're talking India. Asia's biggest emerging market, but also one of its most complex. But there's been big talk of economic reforms under one of the world's most colorful populist leaders, Prime Minister Narendra Modi. We get to explore where those promises are falling short, but also where some of the opportunities may lie. A lot of our private equity and pension fund clients have been looking at distress assets, both in the power sector, for instance, but the renewable sector as well. So there is a fair bit of interest in that space. Obviously, this is still very early days yet, but we are fairly bullish on, on the prospects going forward. And given the, the fact that you know we're seeing a significant economic downturn right now, you would have some of these stakes being sold at even better valuations. So that re- really does open up opportunities for big global funds to look at India with renewed interest. That and more coming up in this episode from Control Risk Asia Pacific team. Today, I'm speaking with Pratyush Rao, who's calling in from New Delhi. Pratyush is Director of Control Risk South Asia Analysis and was formerly a member of the UK High Commission in India. With our colleagues based in New Delhi and Mumbai, he helps our clients navigate the complexities of the subcontinent. Modi kind of came in with the promise of being this economic messiah, and the jury is still out, but it definitely feels like he's fallen short of his promises. The last one year that since he's come back for a second term with even a bigger majority than he had in 2014 has almost been overwhelmingly been focused on his social agenda, his Hindu nationalist agenda. So we saw these dramatic moves in Kashmir where Modi revoked the, the region's political autonomy, which has been accompanied by an intense security clampdown. Obviously, that has implications both on the foreign policy side with Pakistan, given that the region has been a bone of contention between the two, but equally domestically, given the fact that uh, it's actually stoked the insurgency once again. And then the second part uh, has been just around the impact on the India social fabric. Uh, one of the far-reaching laws that Modi came up with uh, in December 2019 was this uh, Citizenship Amendment Act, which, I mean, it sounds innocuous on the face of it because it ostensibly aims at providing persecuted religious minorities in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Bangladesh an accelerated path to Indian citizenship uh, as long as they're not Muslim, but it kind of fed into this fear of an, uh, that the BJP, Modi's governing BJP, had an anti-Muslim bias and was effectively aiming to dilute India's secular constitution. Uh, and so it's been really one set of challenges after the other, primarily been focused on, on social engineering rather than kind of leveraging that political capital for economic reforms. So, so I would agree with you that it's the performance that's certainly been lacking uh, in terms of under-delivery of expectations. So we know that Prime Minister Modi has announced a large infrastructure program that really he said that the second term would be all about infrastructure. I think they've announced about a trillion dollars to to go into infrastructure, including logistics and logistics parks and things like that. So I guess, can you paint a picture for us around 
the operational challenges. So is the government's plan to really improve logistics and, and infrastructure, which is also a big challenge for investors in India, is that really happening? And then I guess part of that is also, do we see it happening, that or other reforms happening in certain states versus others? So if you look, if we're looking at it from an investor's perspective, they may be able to choose a little bit where they where they go, as we often say, that's quite important. Can you paint that picture for us? So, so Modi, again, uh, I mean, the scale of the challenge for him has been the fact that, you know, on one hand, he's come up with these sort of grand visions of, uh, you know, investing $1 trillion in infrastructure creation. But one of the bugbears of that promise has been the fact that India is a federal country and often the laws and the, the remit kind of gives a lot of powers to the state governments, especially around land acquisition, which is such a key ingredient if you want to create new infrastructure, be it roads, be it sort of ports and logistics, warehousing, land is that critical sort of ingredient. And and so far, uh, a lot of the land acquisition processes has been mired in litigation because uh, often land holdings in India are extremely fragmented and you need uh, a high degree of sort of consent requirements from local farmers before you can actually acquire that land. So most of the projects tend to drag on for years. I mean, in some cases, even decades, because uh, because the land acquisition process is just not complete. So uh, the other part of the process is the the legal side of the issues. I mentioned the the high degree of litigiousness, and often when the case ends up in a court of law, because of the high pendency of cases in India's judiciary, cases can drag on for years again. So again, resulting in significant project delays as well as contract risks for for investors. Uh, You mentioned about some of the states taking a lead, and that, that is indeed the case. Uh, states like uh, Maharashtra, Andhra Pradesh, Tamil Nadu, these these tend to do better on some of these scores compared to other states. Uh, but at the same time, th- there are significant variations in terms of the operational risk. So we often advise clients to have a clear-cut understanding of which state they're investing in and fully understanding the extent of the r- nature of the risks in that specific state. Because again, you can't really have one unified approach towards, towards India. Uh, you need to have a very localized approach to your 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 risk mitigation measures. You need to understand the local stakeholders. You need to even foresee political changes. I mean, I mentioned Andhra Pradesh. Uh, Andhra Pradesh ranked until two years ago. It was it topped the ease of domestic ease of doing business rankings. But there was a change in government, and we saw a number of infrastructure projects getting overturned. This involved investors from Singapore, from Japan, uh, and the new state government effectively came and said they were going to renege on all the contracts that had been signed up by the previous government. So having that clear-cut understanding of political risk is equally quite important. When we talk about infrastructure logistics, there have been also comments made by the prime minister and others in the wake of the virus crisis and the disaffection that some investment partners have expressed with respect to China, that the prime minister wants to attract specific investments from China to India. Japan has kind of played a part of that. There's kind of a bromance between Prime Minister Abe and Prime Minister Modi, um, and Japan's been a big investor into India. But with all of the challenges that we know exist at both the federal and state level, is the idea of India becoming either a manufacturing base for for export or a uh, logistics base for South Asia, a hub, so to speak. Is that just all fantasy? I mean, is it is it really even possible? It's such a complicated environment for that, for any of that to actually come to pass? 
So Modi's been talking about this since he came to power in 2014. I mean, the earlier iteration of this was the Make in India scheme, kind of revive domestic manufacturing, create infrastructure. Uh, and it's been sort of six years in the making, and we've not really seen any tangible progress in this space. And 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 to be fair, uh, Modi and his lieutenants do have that the, they have that aggression. They do want to kind of uh, solicit uh, foreign companies seeking to reorder their supply chains and get a bit of a pie. Uh, secure it for India, but uh, and then they've drawn up, for instance, a list of thousand foreign companies that they want to approach. But like I said, ultimately, this is about not just making those top level promises, but actually making sure that the, the laws provide an enabling environment and that it includes both land acquisition uh, easing, but equally an easing of labor laws. Uh, for instance, companies right now cannot restructure based on uh, market trends. You know, if you want to downsize based on, let's say, the COVID crisis, you have to secure all sorts of approvals before you can actually do so, uh, which acts as a significant operational barrier for, for companies. So yes, I think the, the intent is there, but ultimately this is about uh, can state governments actually move in concert with the, with the federal government and can the federal government incentivize these states to compete with one another? So you talked about the challenges, what I call the three L's, land, labor, and legal system, right? If you think about a lot of the jurisdictions in Asia, they all have similar challenges in those respects. But the one sector, if there's one sector that kind of stands out in India where you can avoid some of that, it's tech. And just recently in the last couple of months, even during the crisis, we've seen major announcements, billions of dollars, in fact, going into some of the tech platforms in India. We know that a lot of the unicorns in India, the tech unicorns, have foreign investment, including Chinese investment, a disproportionate, in fact, have investment from China. And often I see Indian commentators say that the reason that tech has been successful is frankly because the government's not involved. It's not, it's not one of those sectors that ever had state involvement, really. It's relatively lightly regulated compared to some others. But even in the wake of some of these announcements, we have seen, a, I would call it a fairly capricious announcement in the change of rules in terms of what foreign invested tech companies in India can do, particularly if they're in the e-commerce space, which I suspect is driven a lot by the prime minister trying to protect his base and kind of the small and medium enterprises. So is it fair to say that, you know, as of right now, the Indian economy at a macro level looks pretty challenged, but at a micro level, particularly in certain sectors like tech, it's a, it's a good bet. It's a good investment. Is that fair? I think I would I would definitely agree with you there that the technology sector especially has been uh, an area where we've seen significant amount of innovation at the grassroots. So most of the Indian startup landscape has been filled with sort of uh, tech companies which have ridden this wave of digitization that was unleashed uh, by uh, Prime Minister Modi's demonetization initiative in 2016 when overnight India kind of withdrew 86% of all cash in circulation. Uh, most of these companies do have fairly strong corporate governance standards and, and we've seen fairly frugal innovation taking place, often in, in spite of the government, like you mentioned. But even though this has not until now been a regulated space, that, that may be changing going forward. We are seeing a move towards uh, a new, uh, the enactment of a new data protection bill, for instance, uh, potentially at some point this year, uh, which has significant data localization clauses. Uh, there's a move to kind of uh, bring in a separate law to, again, govern uh, the e-commerce space. Uh, and, and again, with respect to especially uh, global funds being able to pick up stakes in Indian companies, just in the recent weeks, we've seen the Indian government make it mandatory for 
Chinese investors to secure mandatory federal government approval before they can pick up a stake in Indian companies, which again is a potentially significant regulatory risk for for Chinese companies for sure. But potentially it opens up space for other you know American, Japanese, and and other Asian sort of funds to look at the sector with renewed interest. So it is a sector filled with both risks and opportunities as we see it. So you you touched upon the demonetization, which is one of the big issues of the prime minister's first term, but not the only one. It was perhaps the most surprising one. But the other two, reform of the tax system, the introduction of GST being one, and then the other being the insolvency and bankruptcy law. So we've we've kind of talked a lot about the challenges and some of the more uh, negative aspects of the economy. But these two things, I think everybody seems to think, are real accomplishments of the current government, um, the tax reform and insolvency bankruptcy law. Can you just talk a little bit about you know, how that's improved uh, or not the operating environment for businesses? Sure. Uh- so the, the goods and services tax was really the first attempt to unify India's very sort of taxation system, which until now had been comprised of a whole slew of levies and state level taxes into one single customs union. So this was by far the biggest indirect tax reform that India had seen since independence. So, you know, it was a huge, huge sort of move towards ensuring better sort of operational uh, environment for companies. So companies have a bit more guarantees on on tax enforcement, for instance, on which good or services would attract a certain tax versus others. But it's still an imperfect tax because unlike most other countries where you have one single GST rate, India still has four different taxation rates, which are determined by by what's called a GST council, which comprises of finance ministers of all Indian states. Uh, But effectively, it still transforms India into a single customs union and uh, I would argue that this was this definitely improved the investor experience. The second part was the insolvency and bankruptcy code, which was India's first bankruptcy law. Until now, companies going through a bankruptcy proceeding really did not have an avenue to do so. Whereas what the bankruptcy law does is it gives a set timeline of 120 days for companies to complete the bankruptcy proceeding. So what has transpired after this process is that a lot of foreign companies have been able to look at distressed assets, for instance, as a potential investment opportunity, uh, which again gives a certain degree of credence as well as uh, a sense of uh, guarantee to the process, which earlier wasn't the case. So do we think just based on that, given what's happening in the economy globally, not, not only in India, typically in economic times like this, you have more distressed assets. So do we think that given the new law that we'll see more money coming into India, more foreign money coming into India, chasing the distressed market? So we, we are definitely seeing a bit of that. Uh, so a lot of our uh, private equity and pension fund clients have been looking at distressed assets, uh, both in the power sector, for instance, but the renewable sector as well. Uh, so there, there is a fair bit of interest in, in that space. Obviously, this is still very early days yet, but we are fairly bullish on on the prospects going forward. And given the the fact that you know we're seeing a significant economic downturn right now, you would have some of these stakes being sold at even better valuations. So that re- really does open up opportunities for sort of uh, big sort of global funds to look at India with renewed interest uh, than they did even let's say a few months ago. So to recap some of Prayush's key points here, Prime Minister Modi really has not delivered on the vast majority of the BJP's economic reform platform, such as Make in India. 
but he's turned instead to his social platform, promoting Hindutva or greater Hinduness in Indian society, which is highly divisive and has spawned civil strife. The digitization wave driven by the demonetization of the rupee several years ago actually proved a boon for the local tech industry, and that's attracted a huge amount of foreign investment and interest. But this sector is now coming under increased government regulation, what we call data nationalism. And finally, given India's federal structure, investors should shop around to find the best local environment for their business, but be aware that there are still local challenges, and these will require comprehensive risk mitigation strategies, such as stakeholder mapping. Thank you all for listening. This was another in our Asia podcast series, and we'll be back with more in the coming days. In the meantime, please go to our website, controlrisks.com, for more analysis, or you can subscribe to all of our podcasts on Acast, iTunes, or Spotify. Just search for Control Risks. Thank you.